God's reputation is on the line. Adventure Through the Bible podcast. Your idiot host, Matt, is here. <laughs> I did it again. Karen stopped me before we got, what, too far in. I think it was only about 30 seconds this time. Thank you, Karen. Uh, I mean, thank you, Karen. You're welcome. Uh, so Karen's here. Yeah. And, and, uh, and uh, Tracy is here. Good morning. And the red dot is going up in the left hand corner this time. Oh, boy. Mm. It's a three-day weekend. Matt got a nap. I, I got a nap. I, I got a nap. You wouldn't know it. My brain is asleep. I think so. My brain is dead, and I'm stupid. So, um, but anyway, three-day weekend. Uh, I don't know. You guys got any plans for the three-day weekend or, or any glorious naps in your future? Hopefully uh, glorious naps. I've been up since four. I want to go as What's that all about? No naps here. No, no nap. Remind me of uh, one of the Honey I Shrunk the Kids movies in the Little Kid. No nap. That's retro kids. Oh. But welcome to the Adventure Podcast. Oh, the Adventure to the Bible Podcast. Yay. Here we are. Yes. Uh, all right. So we are going to start this week in Numbers Chapter 26. We're going to see how far we get. I, I would like to try to finish the book because there's there's some chapters that you just literally you just skim through them and you go, wow, that was in, sort of interesting. I don't know lots of names, but um, and then there's parts that have some really cool stuff. But um, so we're going to start with chapter 26, and this starts with a second census of Israel. And they take they're taking count of all the men over 20 years old. And. I think I did the math, or maybe it told us the math. It tells you the math. 601,730 men over 20 years old. So, so wait, are you saying that you actually did the math? Because I'm picturing you adding that up carefully what? and then getting to verse 51 and going, oh, oh. it's right there. <laughs> well, I was thinking about it, and I said, oh, good. Thanks, Moses. <laughs> Your math was correct. Good job. Like, I, I, I don't have enough fingers. <laughs> math checked out so i think this is where and i've heard people say well the israelites were about two million strong right and i and this i think is where they get that estimate yeah i suppose you could probably imagine there's six hundred thousand adult dudes and then women and children yeah well because yeah, so when, when the exodus started we made that assumption remember because they only gave really the male part right 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 yeah, so I mean that's that is a lot of people. And you know, if you think about what that means, is they're traveling through the area, and all these other kingdoms see these people, and they're clearly organized, and they and they basically just showed up on your doorstep. I could kind of see why some of these kings were starting to freak out a little bit. It talks about how the land got in, divided as an inheritance. I think we've either talked about that somewhere. We will talk about that a little bit here later, but. But basically, all of the all of the tribes get a little bit. They get a certain amount based on how big their tribe is, which is interesting to me for considering the future. But for now, they get they will be allotted a certain amount of land of what um, is there in in the promised land in Canaan. There was also a census taken uh, separately of the Levites, and see, this was 23,000 males over one month old. So this wasn't just grown men. This was basically all of the men of the Levites or all of the males of the Levites. Uh, now, here's the part that was really interesting about this. Uh, verses 63 65, it talks about how in this census, there were no men left from the first census. If you remember when we started this book, none except for... Caleb and Joshua. And yeah, I think at this point Moses is still alive. Yeah, right. Moses is still around. But but yeah, so basically basically everybody who left Egypt has died at this point. And it's their kids that are carrying on. Which is that's sort of an interesting thing to consider where 
sometimes the younger generations are going to catch on to something a little easier. Uh, they, well, I mean, think about our own kids, how quickly they've picked up on technological things, how quickly, I mean, you put a brand new computer, a brand new electronic device in their hands and it's like they intuitively already know what to do with it. And you put it in my hands. I go, what do you do with this? You know, it's, it's a, (laughs) it's a miracle that I'm able to get this podcast out on a regular basis. But, um, if but, you uh, the red button, it records. <laughs> We're not going to bring up the red button right now. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little justification. Absolutely, I, I own that one, man. Oh, but uh, but you know those pe- the people that just kept complaining all the time, <laughs> and basically God had to say, "Well, okay, guys, it's going to be your kids then," and uh, and that's what's ha- that's what that's what we're having here and that's really that's the gist of chapter of chapter 26 is mm. that is that we've we've counted everybody again we kind of had to count everybody again because nobody's left it's it's a whole new group of people a whole generation has is has passed on now numbers 27 we get some interesting talk here about inheritance laws and we talk we've talked a lot about how little the women of the time had very many rights and this here is is a good example of how God is kind of moving the people along as quickly as they can handle it. Because what happens here is one, two, three, four, five daughters of a guy named Zelophadad. They they come up and they say, Our dad died in the wilderness. And he was not one of the they specify, he was not one of those who followed. Korah, if you remember, Korah was one of those who got just swallowed up by by the uh, when the earth opened up. But he was not one of those guys. So look, here's the thing: he didn't have any sons, and he's, he had nobody to inherit his property, his land, anything, nothing. And so the daughters basically say, "We should get a share of his stuff." Along with the uncles, because that's basically what happened, is it would all pass them up, and it would go to the next, the closest male heir, and it would all end up going to his brothers. So this would be their uncles, and then these five women are basically left out in the cold. And they say, this isn't right. We we should get a share of this. And Moses takes it to God, and God's, God's like, well, they're right. You know, I could, I could hear that in Morgan Freeman's voice. Well, they're right. <laughs> He's, come on, he's my he's my favorite Hollywood guy to ever play God. He was great. <laughs> yeah. Um. So I I really liked. Um. I thought it was okay. So I spent like a million years in the legal field, and for thirteen of those years, I specifically worked in in probate and estates. Mm-hmm. And I thought that verse um verses eight through yeah eight through eleven I thought were really interesting because it basically sets out the logical sequence of inheritance when there isn't a will, right? So nowadays, a lot of people do a will and they specifically say, I want this of mine to go to that person. Um, But if there isn't a will, each state has their own set of laws that say, if somebody dies without a will, if they die intestate, here's the sequence of inheritance. And it basically reads like this. Yeah. So I thought that was kind of cool, actually. Yeah, it is kind of cool. And it's interesting that it had to be brought to their attention to do it this way because it's clear that nobody had even thought about it because it's like they come to Moses and Moses is like, gosh, I don't know. Huh? What should we do? You know what? I'll go ask God, which is a good response. Let's go ask God about this. But at the same time, you're like, come on, man. This is his kids, you know? And uh, we just think of that instantly today. But back then, it didn't occur to them. Didn't even... Didn't but even cross girls. the most. Yeah, but they're girls, exactly. And so God's like, okay, we got to inch you guys along. He, it, God, never really just throws anything on people that it's just going to be too much all at once. Even today, people look back and they're like, why didn't he just abolish slavery, or why didn't he give more rights to women instantly? Well, because the people at the time wouldn't have been able to handle it. They've been like, oh, what do we know? I don't know how to take care, how to deal with this, you know. And this is one little instance here where where nobody clearly was thinking about women's rights, and God is like, mm-hmm, "Here you go. Here's a here's here's a little thing. You need to let you need to give these daughters uh, some inheritance so they're not left out in the street." 
So, yeah, it does. It goes, we get this line of inheritance. So it goes first to the sons. It's still a patriarchal society. But if there's no sons, then it goes to the daughters. But then if there's no daughters, then the women are cut out again. And it goes to brothers, then uncles, <laughs> and then whatever closest, I take it to be male, whatever closest male relative yeah. uh, there is. But if you, you know, kind of jumping forward, though, it, it still is even really missed when you look at Rebecca and Naomi. Same thing. Yeah. The husbands died and Naomi's like, you know what? You might as well just go on and go back home. Kind of, in essence, forget you were married and go back to your people because we got nothing. Yeah. That's that's all we have. Yeah. It doesn't say anything about wives inheriting anything here. No. Uh Uh-uh. Yeah. So definitely different from our perspective, but that's what we have to remember is looking back is that they had, they, they're getting what they can handle at the time because there's drastic changes coming, you know, over the years, over the centuries, over the millennia, you know, and, and you look from now to back then and, and you can't hardly recognize it. But back then they, they had to be coached along. They had to be just, okay, I'm going to give you this little piece because you can handle this right now. You didn't even consider it before, but. Now you're going to take a look at this and, and we're going to give you this little piece to, to, um, to work with. So the, the one, the one thing that's missing as far as like degrees of consanguinity for inheritance, and I'm, I, and I'm not talking gen- gender, I'm just talking degrees of consanguinity. But the one thing that's missing is parents, like modern intestate law mm-hmm. specifically bequeaths to parents if the parent, like if the child predeceases. And that's mm-hmm. the one thing that's missing here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, kind of thing they didn't think about. Just different. Yeah, exactly. So that gets spelled out. And then um, God tells Moses, you're going to go to, what's it say, Mount Abarim, and you're going to see the promised land. Now, you remember, he's not going to get to go in. He says, you're going to go see the promised land, and you're going to be gathered to your people. And it says because he rebelled against God at Meribah. Now you remember the story of of Moses striking the rock with the staff when he was supposed to speak to it. Mm-hmm. God calls that a rebellion. That was that seems like almost a harsh word to use there. Well, wait where, a second. All right, what version are you reading out of? Uh, New King James. Um, what version is that? At verse fourteen. Oh, interesting. That is interesting. Okay, what so do you have? New King James of Zin, during the strife of the congregation, you rebelled against my command to hallow me at the waters before their eyes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in NIV, it says, for when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, So that's that's interesting. It's a very different way of looking at that. Yeah. So when the community rebelled, you disobeyed. And then, yeah, diso- I mean, in my mind, the connotation of the word rebelled and the connotation of the word disobeyed are vastly different, but right. maybe mm-hmm. in reality, they're not. <laughs> yeah, to you and me, it, it is a different connotation. I guess maybe the sort of the way God looks at it, it's similar to our, our whole concept of what sin is, where we think of sin as being naughty, where sin is really missing the mark. Well, here, uh, God uses a word that's very drastic to to describe what happened. And, yeah, we look at it and go, well, my, Moses made a mistake. Lost his temper. But, but look, lost it, his temper. Korah was looked at as a rebellion. Yeah. And I think that's where we kind of gauge that word from, you know, just here in context. Is that was huge to the yeah. point where God had to open up the, the earth and swallow up people and destroy people. And... You know, to use that word against Moses, who has been his servant from, you know, day one of the or pre Exodus to get them to that point is kind of a harsh word where, Mm -hmm. you know, we look at it as something so minute. But I think as we look through this, even the most minute things had to be addressed because they could come back and, you know, of I guess maybe um, the outside world looking at it as, you know, what? maybe God not being sovereign and covering all the bases. Mm-hmm. 
And I think in the case of Moses, Moses is the leader, like he is the human leader that all of the other humans look at. And so if he's given leniency because of his position, then why aren't they? Right. Right. So there's a fair, I think there's a fairness in here also. But, but the word, you know, the word rebellion is startling to me because I don't think of what Moses did as rebelling. I think of, right. I think of it as him losing his temper and saying, do we need to bring water for you out of this rock? You know, here we go. Fine. Yeah. Bring water. Yeah. Well, He's not his perspective. Yeah. Not rebellion in the strictest sense of what we consider rebellion today, like I guess. Yeah. yeah. Or my son. But so since, um, since this happened, there needs to be somebody new chosen to to lead the Israelites. And Moses asks God to set up a new leader for Israel. And God chooses this guy named Joshua, which I think we've already heard that name. We've already talked about Joshua in our readings. So there's a lot of back and forth here again in the text of as far as time periods go, where this is sort of where we're introduced to Joshua, yet at the same time we've already talked about him. So Anyway, this is what's happening here is that God is, is choosing Joshua. Now, I don't say to, I'm not take this isn't the last we're going to hear about Moses because it's not like like right now is when Moses is dying. But God did tell him you're going to be gathered up. And this could have been I guess this could be when it happens. But the way everything's written, it's so back and forth that it's really hard to kind of determine the timeline on that. Uh, Numbers 28 goes into some daily offerings. Now, most of these we had read about before, so I don't mm-hmm. think we really need to like dip into this too far. But do you know what yeah. I noticed? I had huh. never noticed this before. I noticed that when it talks about the daily offerings, it just says lambs without defect. Mm-hmm. When it talks about Sabbath offerings, it says lambs without defect. When it gets to the monthly offerings, the animals have to be male. Huh. Interesting. <laughs> When it gets to the Passover, everything has to be male. Interesting. Let me look at here. Whatever. Because I, I, I noticed, yeah, I noticed there you get bulls, you get rams, which of course are Dude. male. But then I, I only wrote down seven lambs. Let me see here. This is. Um... So, okay, so daily offerings. Mm-hmm. This is uh, chapter 28, verse. Four, offer one lamb in the morning and the other at twilight. Yeah. So, two, you know, two lambs without blemish, without defect. Yeah, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath offerings, offerings, two lambs. Yeah, two lambs. And then monthly offerings, two young bulls and seven, one ram and seven male lambs. See? And then when you get to the Passover. We're on seven. Yes. Okay. So my version doesn't say male lambs for monthly offerings. It just says seven lambs. Oh. But see, now that's a translation question. Why would that be different? I don't know. Different. I I see that is something to talk about sometimes. Like, and uh, different translations use different manuscripts, and of course, manuscripts are going to be somewhat uh, beholden to the person who wrote them. So somebody here for the new, whatever manuscript is being used for New King James, they may have left that out. And uh, whoever's using the NI or translating NIV, that manuscript included it. So it's interesting. But yeah, but so we can suffice it to say, though, that there are <laughs> there's a lot of offerings. I mean, a, 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 a lamb, two lambs every single day. Morning uh, and evening. When you come to Sabbath, you still have those two lambs, but you do another two lambs. Uh, beginning of each month, you still have those first two. Every every time something else comes along, you, they don't, they don't. Uh, how do you put it? They don't not do the one that's supposed to happen on that day. So every day they're doing two lambs. Every Sabbath they're doing two more lambs. Uh, if it's the beginning of month, then they're doing, they're adding. That's like a the full bulls. fifth. The ram, the lambs, you know, and, if, and I suppose if, it, if that beginning of a month falls on a on a Sabbath, then they're including that. So when you get to Passover, you're doing you're doing it all again: two bulls, a ram, seven lambs, uh, feast of weeks, um, two bulls, a ram, seven lambs, all of these things, and they were expected to do all of them, even if they overlapped. 
I wonder if that's because, <clears throat> I mean, I'm sure there's layers of reasons, but, but weren't the, weren't the sacrifices, I mean, I get that they were sacrifices, but weren't part of the eh, carcasses, for lack of a better, lack of a more delicate word, weren't part of the carcasses for the on, on duty tabernacle staff for their food? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, specifically the priests, I know. Um, I suppose, yeah, the tabernacle staff too. Right. Well, that's so, what that meant. Yeah, because it was the priests yeah. that were. Yeah. Right. No. Yeah. So, yeah, they would get to eat part of it, and then all the all these grain and wine offerings or drink offerings would be coming along with it too. Well, and... the drink get poured out though. Yeah. What do they so... all? Does it all get poured out? Poured out of some of it? I don't know, but but yeah, the thing that got me here with chapter 29 was just oh the so many offerings happening and then oh. i was interested too because i've always sort of thought as the day of atonement as being like the most important thing of the year <laughs> but the thing that gets the most offerings is this feast of tabernacles well it's because it's eight days long and remember we looked yeah. at that before the feast of tab with the other thing that they called it was the feast of booths or the feast of tents yeah and it's where they for eight days they put up temporary shelters and they basically camped and it was to remind them that they were sojourners, remind right. them that God brought them out of Egypt and that they were temporary and that they were not yet to their home, yep. you know, just to remind them of their great rescue. That's what the Feast of Tabernacles was. And it went on for, yeah, the fact that it went on for eight days, I think, was the thing that made that list of sacrifices so huge. Yeah, and it was a lot of sacrifices every single day. It was like, like a the descent. Feast of Trumpets, sorry. So the, like the Feast of Trumpets or the Festival of Trumpets was um 10 days yeah so on the first day of the seven month seventh month there's you sound the trumpets and then 10 days later is the day of atonement so that's like a precursor right mm-hmm. yeah the only one i didn't really ever figure out was the festival of weeks i still don't know what that means yeah i don't yeah i, I don't know there's such much different context but yeah that feast of tabernacles man eight days of it and every i mean they start out the 13 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs, plus grain and drink offerings, plus a kid goat for sin offering. And then every day they would have oh, descending. They would have this. They would do that same thing, but they would have one less bull every day. And uh, that was just a lot of animals, man. A getting, lot of uh, animals. getting, getting, getting sacrificed for that week. Someday I would like to ask what all of this meant because from my modern perspective that is so gruesome i can just mm-hmm. barely get my brain around it yeah 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 we do have to we have to remember that that um we look at this stuff and we go wow that's brutal that's gruesome that's gross um but it had significance to them at the time and and it's a cultural difference that we're probably just not going to get not without not without getting into some deep anthropology to learn you know, to learn these significances, because I'm sure there's people out there who know, and I'm not one of them. <laughs> <laughs> now, Numbers chapter 30 talks about, I'm, I'm big on not jumping in too quick into <laughs> taking a stance, taking a taking a, a very specific, deliberate point of view. And especially here, it talks about the law concerning vows, and this really speaks to it speaks to my heart here because just because of the way some of this goes down. Basically, if a man t- takes a vow in, the, in this in this society, in the Israelite society there. Everybody okay over there? I know. What was that? I don't know. <laughs> Things falling off my desk. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Tracy's, Tracy's getting I'm- mad. I know, one move, things fall apart over here. <laughs> so anyway, there's actual laws about taking vows uh, in this society. And if a man, it says if a man makes a, bow, a vow, he is bound to it, period. You, you make a promise, you say you're going to do something, you're expected to do it. Now, a young woman would be given a little leeway if she's living with her father. Because if she made a vow, she was only bound to it. She was only bound to it if her father agreed with the vow. 
same thing if with a married woman. If her husband agrees, then she was then she would be bound to that vow. A widow, she's bound to her vow unless her husband overruled it before he died. And if there's no response at all from the husband, then it's just accepted that he has consented to whatever it is that she has vowed to. Or she got to him before he could override her. <laughs> he just died. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> sure if that's what he said. <laughs> is it written anywhere? <laughs> right. Okay, so I get everything that they're saying here. And I promise you that my blood pressure only went up for a few brief moments when I saw that a man could just override a woman's vow if he caught her soon enough. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, but do you guys remember in Leviticus that God set in place a way for a person to buy back a rash vow? Yeah. You remember that? Mm-hmm. That's cool because... Does God want you to think before you speak? Yes. Does he want you to stick to your word once you've given it? Yes. But what if, what if in your humanness, you like rush out onto some limb you shouldn't and make some grand statement and then realize you shouldn't have done it? Yep. There's a redemption in place for a rash vow. And you have to openly acknowledge that was a rash vow. And I am willing to pay the price to take that back. Yeah, and it is good that you get the opportunity because, I mean, these days, you say something, you take a stand on something, you get out there before you've thought it through, and then later you realize you've been kind of foolish. It's kind of, It can be hard to pull that back. People, well, sometimes yeah. they just double down and they just they just stick to it, you know, and, and uh, they'll just keep piling onto it and making it worse instead of... Instead of accepting that they that they did something rashly and too quickly, and I think maybe a lot of people would be fairly accepting if somebody just says, "You know what? I'm sorry. I shouldn't have. I shouldn't have either. I shouldn't have said that. I didn't think it through. I uh, I've got more information now than I had before, and I just can't hold up what I said before." Yeah. Well, the thing in, okay, so the thing, I'll just read this really quick. So this is in Leviticus 5, starting in verse 4. If anyone thoughtlessly takes an oath to do something, whether good or evil, in any manner, in any matter one might carelessly swear about, even though they are unaware of it, when they learn of it and realize their guilt, when anyone becomes aware that they are guilty in any of these matters, they must confess in what way they have sinned. As a penalty for the sin they have committed, they must bring to the Lord a female lamb or goat from the flock as a sin offering, and this priest shall make atonement for them. So so you're supposed to think before you say something, and if you need to take it back, you're supposed to think before you do that too and openly acknowledge what you did. I said that. I vowed that. It was rash. I shouldn't have gone out on that limb. I'm going to take these steps to formally come back off of the limb. And that's such respectful that's such a respectful thing. Like I can't even, I can't even fathom the few times in my life that I've heard somebody say, yeah, I shouldn't have said that. And just openly acknowledged in front of their friends or their family. I shouldn't have said that that was wrong. I wasn't thinking or I overthought it. I thought it to death and turned it into something. It wasn't, I shouldn't have done that. And I, and this is a formal take back, Mm -hmm. you know, that's kind of cool. It is cool. It is, but it's it's admitting that it was wrong, and that's what I think the hardest part for more, most people is just coming across and saying, you know what, I, I was wrong. And it's yeah. eating that big piece of humble pie or just, you know, asking for forgiveness of others, you know, for just being rash. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's a big – it's it's big on our no, – that, that, that kind of sounds wrong. It, it, it takes it – takes, something on our part to be able to accept when somebody admits they're wrong and then not lord it over not hold it over them and be like, yeah, see, I told you, you know, right. and, uh, and I think that's a most uh, people's biggest fear is that, you know what, now I'm going to have to subject myself to exactly, you know, somebody else saying that, that, you know, I told you so, or yeah, you were totally wrong. And it's, I think it's that, that fear part that doesn't allow them to do that. Right. Uh, Think yeah. if we could turn this into a Facebook policy. I think this should be. 
That was that was stop now. <laughs> Facebook wouldn't be any fun then, Karen. Oh, okay. My bad. Sorry. No, every nobody no ever. Everybody thinks out what they say before they put it on Facebook, Karen. Oh. Okay. <laughs> Always adequately adequately researched. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, okay, chapter thirty-one is really interesting. I was totally into chapter thirty-one. Okay, yeah, let's get into thirty-one. Moses or God tells Moses, "Take vengeance on the Midianites, and then afterward you'll be gathered to your people." Now I remember, <laughs> I'm 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 blanking right at the moment, but what happened with the Midianites here? Oh, it's just a few chapters ago. Yeah, I know, I know, but my blind, my my brain is, you know, I had too much sleep yesterday. <clears throat> right, right. Too well rested. Brain is shut okay. off. Okay, so it's back in 25. So, so it talks about how Moab, which is the Midianites, and this, by the way, are the oh, rather yeah, yeah. In, inbred descendants of Lot and his eldest daughter. Blech. So the so the Israelite men start getting, shall we say, involved with the Midianite women. Right. And it gets so bad that one of the Israelite men just brings his little Midianite chickie home with him right into the Israelite camp, right in front of God and everybody. And then yeah. they two, two things result. The man and the woman are killed and a plague. A plague is sweeping through the camp and it continues to sweep through the camp until the man and the woman are killed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So that's what happens. And then in 31, I thought this is why I thought it was so interesting. In 30, in chapter 31, how did they word that? It talks about how Balaam gave the advice to, on how to seduce the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Oh. So, this, so this was when, so Balaam gave the advice to Balak. He couldn't curse the Israelites, but he gave him advice. And he said, seduce the Israelites this way. They did. The Midianite women really got into this, and they did. And the incident at Peor that they start talking about was the the outcome of that. And so now it's time to get revenge. Yeah. Now, so these they're going to take a thousand men from each tribe. So this equates to twelve thousand men, right? I'm going to make sure I'm not misspeaking here because I'm trying to remember because the. Uh, yeah, 12,000 armed for war. That's verse 5. The only reason I was balking at that was because I'm thinking of the uh, of the Levites, because the Levites, well, would the Levites been in, included in this? I don't know. I don't think so. So, But we've talked before about how that, that those 12 tribes, it's, it's kind of fuzzy math to come up with um, those 12 tribes, because sometimes this guy's included and that guy's not, and then sometimes they split this one. And, anyway. Right, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but Balaam so, actually gets killed in this. Yeah. Balaam, with all his shenanigans and his terrible advice to Balak, he gets killed in this in this thing. Yep. yep. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I remember that. Balaam was like, oh, curse these guys. Okay, you won't do it from here. Let's go over here. Curse these guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, you won't do it from there. Let's go over here. Let's curse these guys. Yep. And, and Balak is like, I can't. I can't do it. I can't. Well, I can't okay, yeah, them. Balaam. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So. And, well, yeah. But yeah, Balaam is the one who wanted them cursed. And no, Balak, Balak is the king. Balak, Balak is the king. Balak was the king. Balaam Sorry, was guys. A... Yeah, no, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah, I got Balaam was the part-time prophet, part-time shyster. Yeah, who no, I have was called on to do the cursing. Couldn't curse them, so he at least gave advice. And we get to his advice in verse 15, where uh, Moses is shocked to find that the women are still alive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they go in, they clean up, and... Yeah, <laughs> you you kept you kept some people alive and the women and well, let's face it, the women were taken as spoil. And well, but it says flat out, have you allowed the women to live? They were the ones who followed Balaam's advice and enticed the Israelites to be unfaithful to the Lord in in at Peor. Right. Kill the boys. Kill every woman that has slept with a man. Your spoils are the girls who haven't ever slept with a man. Mm-hmm. 
which there again, that's another one of those things where you go, yeah. But uh, by today's standards. In this case, sex was the commodity. Like that was the enticement. Like if you go back to chapter 25 and you read about the incident at Peor, it's because the because the Midianite women enticed the Israelite men to their bed. This whole thing hinged on sex. Right. So. Right. It's uh, again, it's one of those times when we we, we look at the way God works on these things. And, we, we, you know, I've come to I've come to realize that we we can't really predict what God would say, you know, what God would do. We talk about the phrase, what would Jesus do? And the more and more you read through Scripture, you realize a lot of times you don't know because he surprises us a lot. He surprises, you know, he'll come up with some some very interesting solutions to problems that nobody considered. They would be like, we either need to do this or this, and Jesus would come along and go, nope, we're going to do this. And everybody's like, what? You know, and same thing here. I mean, it would be like, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll keep the women uh, to show some mercy or to have the spoils of war, or we kill everybody, but God's like, no, we're going to kill some of them and not others, and and um, it's an interesting, I don't know, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around it here a little bit, but that uh, the way God is working in this to, to address the problem that had been uh, placed before them, and how he's he really is addressing the problem in a specific way, and... Uh, I hadn't quite considered it in that fashion, but you know, I think you're, I think you're dead on there. To, uh, you know, the problem, like you say, the problem was sex before, and we're gonna, we're going to, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna solve it with that too. Interesting. So they do. They kill everybody. They keep some of the women. They keep, they keep uh, like the precious metals and stuff. And they go through, they go through purification processes for that, the fire and water and 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 cleaning and stuff of like that. Um, Did you see how much gold they brought back? A lot. I mean, I guess it doesn't say how much gold they brought back. It says how much gold they contributed to to God. And that they contributed 420 pounds of gold to God. And that and they still all had their spoils. Mm -hmm. How? Yeah, they have to they're told how to divide up all this plunder and get getting divided into two parts. It's gonna go some is gonna go to the people who actually went to war. And some is going to go to the people who didn't go to war. And I thought that was kind of interesting, too, where, you know, the you might instantly think, well, those people who went to war, they should be the one to get the spoils. You know, they did basically did all the work But God says, no, we're going to you guys are going to get ha- some and they're going to get some. And then everybody gives tribute to Eleazar or to the priests or the Levites, I guess I should say. But Eleazar specifically, because he's high priest, he gets a specific tribute. That was the what came from the warriors. His tribute comes directly from the warriors. And then the rest of the Levites get tribute from the other Israelites who did not go to war. Talks about the total plunder. This was quite a bit. 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 women. And that sounds like to me, that's just the ones they... That's the women they kept. This is quite a haul. This is a lot of, uh, it's a lot of stuff. It's a lot of people who are involved. And this is all in addition to what I wrote down, 16,750 shekels of gold, which were given as an offering to the tabernacle. It seemed to me from my reading that the tabernacle got all the gold, but I could have been misreading that. But that's a lot. They got a lot. They really cleaned up on this one. Well, okay, so the way I read it was all the gold from the commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds that Moses and Eliezer presented as a gift to the Lord weighed this money okay. shekel. So to me, I didn't, I didn't hear that as in all, all. I read yeah. all that was presented to God weighed this much. That makes sense. So yeah, then they figure they took even more than that. A lot. Well, I mean, they basically wiped out a whole, a whole, I want to say civilization, almost a civilization, you know, a whole, a whole kingdom for sure, and took all their stuff. And uh, yeah. it was quite a bit. It was quite a bit. And I know some people get really, they can get pretty critical of this kind of thing, where they would, where where the Israelites were going in and wiping out people and taking everything. 
But we just have to remember that we don't have the perspective that they have. We don't have the perspective that God was placing on them. And uh, remembering that with the assumption that God is the God of the universe and that these other people were idolatrous, they were worshiping and doing things contrary to what God tried to, has tried to set up for the world, sometimes maybe the best thing to do is to wipe the slate clean. And that's kind of what's happening here, where we're going we're gonna to start over with the Israelites in the area. And uh, to do that, we have to, we have to clear it out. You know, I think it was too weak. We didn't mention that it was a direct detriment to his, to the Israelite people that he was setting up to to take the Canaan and and establishing them. And it went, and that's exactly what Balaam did. You know, I can't curse them, but here, this is a way that you could aid in their downfall. And that's where I think the Lord took exception to it and it was like, okay, we need to take a stand at this point, And this is what I'm going to do. So what the, there's this thing that, and I'm remembering it from like times that God gets mad at the Israelites and he says, why am I even trying with these people? You know, Moses, step away from them so I can wipe them out. And, and Moses's response often has to do with God's pride, like with his, his visible persona, not to the Israelites, but to the nations around. Like at one point I remember he says, don't wipe out the Israelites or what will the nations around say that you brought them out of Egypt and then couldn't bring them to the promised land. See? So he kind of, there's like, there's this, God's reputation is on the line with how the Israelites act and how, how in this case, like, like the, the thing at Peor, their downfalls reflect on God. Their triumphs reflect on God. If he's the, if he, they don't have a king. If he is the leader of this nation, the one God, and he's trying to make these guys different than every other nation around, it has to be visibly different. And so I, I try and keep that in mind when I read some of these, like slaughter everyone, but the, you know, even kill, there are times when they're even told to kill the animals, like as if animals can be defiled by, human worship styles or whatever but there are places where the israelites are sent in and it's like don't take any plunder kill, kill everything so I'm, so I'm remembering that that's one way to look at it and the other thing i'm remembering is the text back in genesis when i think god's talking about his promise and he says you know your descendants are going to go down into egypt as slaves for 400 years and and they're going to stay there for 400 years because i'm still working with these nations right mm -hmm. I'll bring them back out when the time is right. And what he says something about like the, the, I think he's talking about the Amorite Amorites. And he says like, they're not, they're not done yet. So yeah. like he's, he's worked with all of these nations this whole time. And that nation in specific, specifically that's mentioned that I'm, I'm pretty sure it's the Amorites. He's, he, they basically, they get it. They get a 400 year pass on the judgment that the early Israelites could have unleashed on them. Because God was still working with them. So when I look at <clears throat> these Old Testament stories and the taking over of Canaan, when I, when, I re when I read these stories from that perspective, I have to trust God that he's been working with all of the nations of the earth, individually, in groups, by his reputation, all of this time. And if he says it's okay for them to be wiped out, it's actually okay for them to be wiped out. He doesn't need my permission or my understanding. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Absolutely, it and does. I think back to what you were saying too. Is it was it was they were on a stage because if you look at Rahab when the spies went in, mm -hmm. um, she said that directly is like, no, we've been hearing what's been going on out there in the desert, and you guys wandering around and the great miracles that are going on. So people knew exactly what was happening. You know, with yep. the, what we say when we started out today, two million people out there in the desert. You know, doing circles. You know, people are going to pay attention. Yeah. Yeah. We can suffice to say that they had had lots of time. I mean, 400 years. You try to think of how, how many generations that would have been. I mean, you think of guys like Moses living over 100 years old, which probably wasn't the norm at this point, but several generations deep. And there's they've still they've still gotten stuck in 
to their their bad influences and they're dug in like ticks and they there's just not going to uh they're not going to change dug in like ticks that's that's oh. a wonderful mental image you know if you've ever had a tick you know what <laughs> they're fun they're hard to get out yeah they're hard to get out i mean honestly one of the best ways to get them you know you can get them out with uh with fire get a hot stick and poke them in the butt sometimes <laughs> sometimes they'll come out and other times they don't you gotta you gotta figure out how to get them out of there They're, so yeah it it, it works <laughs> all right numbers 32 some of the tribes decide that they kind of like the land that they've just taken and they're like you know what moses we'd kind of like to just stay here so some of the the gadites the reubenites and some of the i'm going to say manassites i guess that's right um, they decide well, they like it on the east side of the Jordan River. What was that, Karen? I think, I think all of the Manassites, all of the tribe of Manasseh, but Manasseh was only a half tribe. So I don't think it's that they were counting half the tribe. I think that's that Joseph's sons were half tribes, weren't they? Ephraim and Manasseh? Mm, well, I so think they that- used... See, that's it's one of those sticky points. I'm not entirely sure because I. it seems like... I thought they were given a full measure. Didn't we read somewhere there? Yeah, I want to say because who are the? It's the it's Manasseh and Ephraim, 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 and Joseph pulled himself out of the tribes, so they got counted, and then the Levites, I want to say, don't get counted as part of the twelve. So, so they are full tribes, but it seemed to me, and I'm trying to figure out where. This where I got, came up with this idea that the reason Manasseh is considered half a tribe is because half of them stay here, and it seemed like half of them uh, went to the other side of the Jordan. I don't know if I get—I guess if we get to that, or if I come up with it, I'll try to point it out. But at any rate, the descendants of Gad, descendants of Reuben, and descendants of Manasseh decide that they like this side of the Jordan River because, for different reasons, they say it's good for livestock. And they say, we'll take this instead of having a portion of uh, Canaan. And Moses warns them, he said, you know, don't follow in the footsteps of uh, of your forefathers there. Um, don't. Uh... OK, it's um, it's in chapter 34. Um, OK. OK, so starting in verse 13. It says, Moses commanded the Israelites, assign this land by lot as an inheritance. The Lord has ordered that it be given to the nine and a half tribes, because the families of the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance. These two and a half tribes have received their inheritance east of the Jordan, across from Jericho, toward the sunrise. Okay. That's where that's where you're that's the reference you're remembering. I knew it was in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I, I that's a I do remember that they were assigned an inheritance, but I, for some reason I thought they were considered a half tribe and they were split with Ephraim. But what do I know? No great scholar here. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I there again. I don't. I don't understand all the nuances of that. And I'm sure as we go. But so they, they, they. Let's see. Why? Did, why was Moses warning them of this though? Six through fifteen. Oh, he's, he, he's remind. Oh, verses starting at verse six. Moses said to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? So it's, he's you know, saying um, all, everybody else is going to have to go to war to get this, and you guys are just going to sit here. And, oh, that's your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. Okay, that's what it is. He's like, don't, look, we're right there. We're right at the cusp of it. We're getting ready to go in, and you guys are saying you don't want to go in. Don't do like those guys did before. You know, we're, we're, we're here to take this land. Don't make that same mistake. But they're like, no, that's not what we're saying. We'll, we're still going to go in a fight with you. We'll go in and fight with you. We'll help you take that land. But we just like it over here. And, um, when we go take all that land, we won't claim any of that. We're, we're, we're going to take this side of the Jordan. Yeah. So they, they get some of it. Manasseh takes Gilead and, uh, those guys. Those guys have their land. They've got what they they got they got what they wanted. Uh, let's see, numbers thirty-three. It's just a quick review of Israel's journey from through Egypt. 
It talks about how they departed the day after Passover in the sight of all the Egyptians. For the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn. I thought that was kind of interesting where, where they're leaving while all of the Egyptians are dealing with the death of their firstborn children. I mean, talk about a distraction. Talk about a, uh, to keep people from chasing you, you know, we're, that's horrible. It is, it is, but you know, we're, we're leaving and they're leaving and nobody's trying to stop them at that time. And so then- in chapter 33, where it does this stages of Israel's journey and it talks about the, how many years and this, that, and the other, um, I have a Bible that has a like a, a best guess by multiple scholars timeline in it, and mm-hmm. it lists BC 1490 as the year that they left um, Egypt, and BC where did it go 1452 as when they as when they were done wandering and they were ready to go into Canaan. Mm. Well, this gives us some idea of how they traveled. And if we were looking at a map, you could see all these places they went. Now, I found it, you know, it's always been in my mind. It was like they they ran from Egypt. Pharaoh immediately chased them and they crossed the Red Sea. But it sounds like that really wasn't the case here because they departed that day after Passover. They went from Ramses to Succoth, then to Etham, then to Pihahiroth, and then they crossed the Red Sea. So we're talking some time uh, taking place before those two events or, or between those two events, I should say. Well, and they spent uh, a year at Sinai, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Well that, but that was after the red sea. I'm just talking about even sure. between in between Passover and the red sea sure. that, that there was some time there. It wasn't the way it's always depicted as like, Oh, we're, we're leaving Egypt and Oh no, here comes Ramses. No, it was, they were leaving Egypt. They'd probably even had a little time to, get used to the idea that oh hey we escaped we got out we're we're good before 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 the pharaoh came after them but it says that Aaron died in the 40th year after leaving Egypt he was 123 years old when he died and i counted it up and i may have miscounted but there's roughly they stayed in 42 different sites between leaving Egypt and going into Canaan let I me mean, remember there was really no indication of how long they would stay in any one place. It could be a couple days. It could be, it could be years, but 42 different sites that they stayed on this, what was supposed to be what 11 day journey. (laughs) 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 They were given some specific instructions on how they were supposed to conquer Canaan. They were supposed to go in and destroy, basically destroy the entire Canaanite culture. If you look in, um, see, we're in chapter 33, and talk of, talks about what they were supposed to do here. 52 says, you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land before you, destroy all their engraved stones, destroy all their molded images, and demolish all their high places. You shall dispossess the inhabitants of the land and dwell in it, for I have given you the land to possess. Basically, go in, take everything, and it says drive them out, so this isn't necessarily like kill everybody, but... But uh, we're not going to leave them in the land. But when you start tearing down the religion of the time there, you're basically destroying that entire culture. And that's what God's telling them to do. You're going to go in and we're not going to leave any traces of them here. Because any Canaanites are going to be a problem. If you leave any of them back, it says if you do in verse 55, But if you do not drive out the inhabitants of the land from before you, then it shall be that those whom you let remain shall be irritants in your eyes and thorns in your sides, and they shall harass you in the land where you dwell. So God doesn't want these people to be coming back and being a problem for the establishment of this new Israelite nation. And we got to get all that out of there. And he says, if you don't do this, then I'm going to do it to you. I thought that was kind of interesting the next several chapters here i don't have a lot of notes we get some boundaries appointed through canaan you could read through that reminder that reuben gad and manasseh have already received their land you get some leaders cities of refuge yeah that's yeah that is in chapter 35 
So the Levites are going to get some specific cities given to them. And six cities will be specifically appointed as cities of refuge. Well, what this means, it says, King James called it where a manslayer may flee. Well, man, manslaughter is like when, when you, you kill somebody, it's a bad situation, but you didn't mean to. So uh, we're not talking about murder. We're talking about accidentally killing somebody. And if you accidentally killed somebody, you could go to one of these six cities and nobody could come nobody could touch you there and um, it says they shall be places of refuge from the avenger so that anyone accused of murder may not die before they stand trial before the assembly so it'd be three on each side of the jordan mm-hmm. and that's what it's for and that avenger i believe what we're talking about with that avenger is if somebody yeah. from the family of the person who died yeah, they had a, there. There was a certain. Seems like there was a certain amount of right given to them that they. If you killed somebody, if you committed, if you murdered somebody, that avenger could come and kill you, and there'd be no repercussions. It's kind of the way I take it, mm-hmm. or at least it was culturally accepted. But but um, here, if you've done something accidentally, you have some refuge. You can go to this place. That avenger cannot come touch you there. And and you will be safe. Uh, it says until until the high priest died. Now, right? I thought we had read something about this before a, a couple of weeks ago, but it wasn't it wasn't forever. You went there. You and basically you got kind of like a free, not a free, but you got a, a trial. It wasn't mm-hmm. something that was done quickly and and harshly without all the information. You kind of went there. They were able to gather the kind of facts with the high priest, and then I think they you made your case there. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't a free get out of jail card. You can just go there and and right. seek asylum forever. Right. Yeah. No, you couldn't. But here, this is the interesting thing, though. Too even even if it was determined that you did this accidentally, if you ever left that city, then that avenger could come kill you. And. Kind of the way I was taking this was if you're staying there, you are sort of you're showing your remorse. You're showing you're showing that um, you feel bad about what happened. But if you decide to leave, that's sort of like you're saying uh, it's I don't care. It's yeah. not that important to me. And you know, if, if you, this is kind of, I wonder if this is an analogy of salvation. Right? Because you're basically mm. under the protection of the high priest who stands as your shield against the avenger. But if you go out from underneath that high priest's shelter, then you're on your own and the avenger has the right to come after you. Mm-hmm. Because you actually did something that caused the per- the avenger to to want to come after you. So, like, you're not... How do they say you're free to make any decision you want, but you're not free from the, you're, you're free to, you're free to have opinions, but you're not free from the consequences of your opinions. You're free to act how you want, but you're not free from the consequences of your actions. You see what mm-hmm. I'm getting at? Yeah. And, and this is very much, this is very much like a high priest shielding. And that's kind of cool. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, you have to. You you have to you have to show that you are respectful of the other people. You understand that what you did has had repercussions on other people, and by being confined to this city, you're still you're still sort of in a uh, taking some pen, some penance, the right word, you know, and by by staying there, you're you're acknowledging that a bad thing happened and that and that. Um, that you're remorseful for it, but leaving it would just be kind of being flippant about it and, you know, know, Oh, well, whatever. And if that happens, then it's just as bad as if you had, had deliberately killed that person. Uh, let's see. The final thing, chapter 36, that is the final chapter. Yeah. Yeah. Zelophehad, or however you say it. Zelophehad. Uh, yep. Mm-hmm. Zol- had Sure. Yeah. Sounds good. So there's here again, we get more we get a little bit more of women's rights placed towards them. 
and there's a there, there, there's recognition that there's a problem here now. These women who got inheritance, it was always understood that some that when a woman would marry, anything she had becomes her husband's. Well, you got these women now who have tribal inheritance. And remember, the tribes were all given inheritance based on the size of their tribe. And if anything leaves, if any property were to leave that tribe, then it affects the whole tribe and, and there's less to go around for them. And so there's um, this recognition. If these women, if these women marry, they're going to take their land with them. And God comes up with a solution that is interesting to our ears, but but uh, for the time, I guess it made sense. Women who owned land now at this point would have to marry. They could not marry outside of their tribe so that the, the tribe would retain its inheritance. And the person was like, what do you mean? Women can't ever marry outside the tribe? No. Women who owned land were expected to marry within their tribe so that so that that land would stay with the tribe. I wonder if there was a, I mean, all right, women's rights. Okay, I get it. Wrong generation. But I guess my first thought is, well, but what if they fell in love with somebody outside of their tribe and they genuinely wanted to marry there? Could they sign their rights over to a male relative? Could they sign away their rights of inheritance to a male relative? I don't know. It's neither here nor there, but just tell, goes to tell you how my first world female brain works. It's like, no, there's got to be a way. You can't deny love or whatever. Well, they could marry outside of the tribe, but they couldn't take the land. Which is the price they had to pay. Yeah. Oh. So if you if you fall in love with with uh, with uh, uh, Joe Gad, <laughs> you know, <laughs> instead of Joe Rubin, then <laughs> then um, your land stays behind, and you got to make a choice. You know, so you you could still marry, but He's not getting your he's not getting your property, you know. And in some ways, that's maybe good too. I've I can I know of one situation personally where a guy married into a family, the wife had property and a substantial amount of property, and um, all that land ended up kind of becoming his. He started developing it. He started putting buildings on it and whatnot, and the kids kind of got left without anything and they were a little bitter about it, you know? So I can kind of see how this, how this would happen. And these days it could go either way. I mean, a woman takes her, uh, property with her, but right. for the time being, that was the way it went. But it is still recognizing that women have, that women had rights and that they did have land and they could have property. Mm -hmm. Kind of how we started off, you know, today is that they were given those provisions that, you know what? You can have some land if there's no other male inheritance that you you know you're going to be looked after, right? Exactly. So we're starting to see some things progress, and the Israelites are coming to terms with things that they hadn't considered before. I think and it's the, the forming of of a society that they're going to take into into Canaan, and you know what they were learning all the ropes through the wilderness, and now they're going to be able to apply them in all the different aspects because there's some things that we didn't we didn't see in the beginning and that they had to kind of work through, and now they're going to be able to apply them. Exactly. Exactly. Right. Well, I think that is going to conclude our study today. Next week, we will start into a new book. We will get into the book of Deuteronomy. Now, it's still called the fifth book of Moses. I'm pretty sure that if I remember right from the last time I read through Deuteronomy, we understand there's no way that Moses wrote, read all of it because I know we're going to we're going to come across Moses's death yeah, specifically. Right. And it keeps and the book keeps going after that. So maybe it's Joshua that picks it up. But um, it's the yeah, it's the fifth book. It's going to be the last of what we know of as the Pentateuch or as the Torah, mm -hmm. um, what would be a lot of times referred to as the law. When you talk, we'll, we'll get eventually to when they talk about the law and the prophets. They're talking about those first five books, the law. And then after, everything after that is, is, is considered what they call the prophets. But 
anyway, it's gonna it's gonna bring us into the kind of the end of an era, and we're gonna after we get done with Deuteronomy, we're gonna get into some different territory. It's gonna, you know, we gotta start seeing what happens once the society has been established. Right. So it's gonna be cool. It's gonna be cool. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. And um, so if you want to prepare for next week, start reading the book of Deuteronomy, probably the first five chapters. In the meantime, always remember, you can reach us at attbpodcast at theadventure.org. You can find us on Facebook at Adventure Through the Bible. Please be sure to share the podcast and remember always to subscribe so that you get us each and every week. We look forward to talking again next week. Thanks for listening. Take it from the top.